0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, it's Brad Listy. Happy holidays. As I do every year around this time, I want to take a moment to plug the ASPCA, the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, If you're looking for a good cause to support this holiday season, go to ASPCA.org ASPCA.org, and make a donation. Help a dog or a cat, a puppy or a kitten get out of a bad situation. I can't think of a better cause to support. Human beings, we have our problems. Let's try to help other species affected by our problems. All right. Should we get on with the show? Let's do the show. I think we should do the show. Thank you.
1: You are not alone. You have found other people.
2: You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, It was like your head exploded seeing what was really there.
1: And now here's your host, Bradley Steen.
0: Just one
1: person right, at just one right, time. All right, all right, all right, 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 How's it <laughs> right. going, everybody?
0: Welcome to the Other People Podcast, a weekly program featuring in-depth interviews with today's leading writers. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California. Thank you for listening. It's good to be with you. I have a very special edition of the program today. Uh, as I just said, you know, usually I'm talking to writers explicitly on this program. Today, I have the Oracle of Los Angeles on the program. She is a writer, uh, but she is much more than that. She's an artist. She's a witch. She's a healer. She uh, has a bi-monthly radio show on K-Chung Radio. She teaches the Magical Praxis Monthly Mystery School here in L.A. and uh, performs private rites of healing and empowerment at her magical studio in West Adams. She's an oracle. She's a witch. She's a tarot reader. Did I pronounce that correctly? Tarot reader? She's a spellcaster. She's an energy healer. She's an intuitive medium, a shamanic practitioner, and a magical life coach. And I can't think of a better time... Uh, to have her on the program than right here in the middle of the holiday season. I should add that uh, she has been recommended to me by more than one guest that I have had on this program. They've said, hey, you know, you need to have Amanda on the show. She's great. Uh, And that's her name. She's Amanda Yates Garcia, also known as the Oracle of Los Angeles. So I emailed her. I reached out. I said, hey, would you like to come over and talk to me? She was kind enough to do so. And I had a really good time with her. I could have talked to her longer. One of those guests. But uh, we spent about an hour together. And uh, I think you're going to enjoy this. So without any further ado, here she is, folks. This is Amanda Yates Garcia, uh, a.k.a. The Oracle of Los Angeles. I'm
2: Amanda Yates Garcia, Oracle of Los Angeles. And I have a practice as a witch, a healer, an artist. I I see them all as... Folded into one another
0: you consider yourself a witch oh yeah
2: okay i mean that's my practice
0: what is a witch
2: yeah good question what is a witch well i think on a really basic level one of the reasons why i call myself a witch is because i do the things that witches do for instance i cast spells and i make i i I do incantations and invocations and use healing herbs and uh and you believe this stuff works yeah, absolutely. I see it in my, I mean, I see it work out all the time. But, you know, also with a caveat that, as for instance, love works different differently than it does in the movies, right? Like, we have this idea of what love is based, you know, as children, as we're growing up, and we sort of learn about what love is from our environment and from popular culture. And then when we go grow up to actually do it ourselves, we realize that it, it, it isn't exactly the way that you see it in the movies. It's kind of a truncated version. And similarly, I think most people's idea of what witchcraft is is very much informed by popular culture. And so they're going to have expectations about what that means drawn from popular culture, like, for instance, Harry Potter or... Teen Witch. A teen Witch or The Craft.
0: <laughs> One of my favorite movies as a child. It was Teen Witch.
2: Yeah, Teen Witch. Yeah, I don't even know if I've seen Teen Witch. Isn't that a TV show?
0: It might be. I think they did a spinoff, but the original is a very like very B, B movie, and there's just there's a rap song in it, I think, called Top Bat. You just have to see it. It's so bad that it's great.
2: Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I sometimes find those kinds of things a little bit aggravating. I actually have people ask me sometimes because I do public performances. I came to my practice sort of as an artist um, or my practice as a witch an Oracle as an artist. Although I, I grew up practicing witchcraft. My mother was a witch and she...
0: She passed it down. It's the family it business. Down. It
2: is. Well, yeah, exactly. So how
0: do you find out when you're a kid that you... did your mom sit you down one day and she's like, honey, I'm a witch?
2: Well, no, because, you know, it actually, there's sort of historical precedent for it. And... She was also a part of a Unitarian church, and during that time in the 70s and 80s, there was a real resurgence of this sort of feminist religious practice, um, which was aligned with the idea of witchcraft. They called themselves witches. And they would say, you know, this is the oldest religion. I have a kind of differing opinion about that. I don't think that we can say really... That the, sa- that the practices that witches use now are the same as the practices that were being used like thousands of years ago. But there are certainly a lot of similarities. I mean, just this, like Christianity as its practiced now probably bears very little resemblance to what was going on 2,000 years ago in Israel or whatever. You know, but- I'm reading
0: about that right now.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's completely different. Like there, for for instance, if you read original texts that were written, you know, simultaneously to the time of Christ, then, you know, there was all sorts of astrology and paganism and many different gods. There were
0: lots of healers and magicians and all that kind of stuff.
2: Astrologers. uh, Yeah, yeah, exactly. And using the use of talismans and very like psychedelic mystical experiences that they write about quite candidly. Like for instance, in the Pista Sophia is what I'm speaking about specifically. Uh, Uh, What is that? It's a Gnostic text from the time of Christ. Um,
0: They were using psychedelics back then?
2: I don't think it was psychedelic. Was Jesus tripping? I mean, it sounded, I mean, based (laughs) on this text, it sounds like he was. It talks about, I mean, the text is really um, about Mary Magdalene and his relationship with Mary Magdalene. And then, then it sort of skips around to tell the story of Sophia, which is, which is a, sort of goddess figure within early Christianity of the the Holy Spirit, essentially. Wisdom, the Anima Mundi. Anyway, so he in in this text, like Jesus talks about ascending up into heaven and having it crack open and the things that happen when he's up there and he talks a lot about how like triangles and circles and things turning to the left and the right, which kind of doesn't make a lot of sense unless you kind of consider it astrologically where there are trines and, um, other geometric shapes and things like that.
0: I don't know a lot about astrology.
2: Oh yeah. Well, yeah.
0: I, that's why I have you here. Yeah. You can here I am. Me. <laughs> Let me break it down. Yeah, please. <laughs> uh, so, okay. So you're young. Your mom's a witch. Yeah. She starts to teach you stuff. Mm-hmm. What does she, what does she teach you first?
2: Well, she, when I was a child, was doing this thing called Cups for the Queen of Heaven, which was about women's spirituality and earth-based spirituality throughout history. Things that have really been written out of uh, our historical understanding of theology, I guess. And so I learned a lot about different goddesses and different ways of approaching... A spiritual practice than what you might learn at sunday school for instance as a christian or a catholic or a muslim or a jew
0: that's funny too because and i just want to interject here because you, when you talk about the feminine like there, there is like a masculinization of religion mm-hmm. that is relatively recent in terms of the grand scheme of things yeah like over the millennia like correct like why weren't like goddesses more common
2: certainly it in, seems in like ancient religions know, or go, go back have the, three thousand years
0: okay I just, I, yeah. I, I, th- I seem to remember reading that somewhere, and that with like the when you start to masculinize things, um, it, things have a way of of going south or at least going sideways.
2: <laughs> yeah, it de- I, there's not a great historical precedent for worshiping the masculine above the feminine and ha- and having a good result for That's what, everyone. Yeah, like it does certainly. We seem need that more. Suffering- we need more witches. Yeah. We need more witches. That's my, that's my mission in life is to kind of create an army of witches.
0: So, okay. So your mom, uh, is working in this vein. Yeah, You're aware of it.
2: Yes. So for instance, so I was learning a lot about mythology and, um, feminist practices within that. And then, There are other things that are more practical. For instance, like I was learning tarot, like she taught me when I was 12. I made my own set of runes when I was, yeah, about that same age. When I turned 13, you know, sort of a coming of age ceremony. um, We did a ceremony where you tie a red cord between my wrist and her wrist. And then all these women and their daughters came on the full moon. Where were you raised? santa barbara
0: oh my god perfect
2: yeah right (laughs) this this wasn't
0: because i'm from the midwest i was like this wasn't happening in milwaukee i don't Uh, think
2: right i mean i'm not sure but i'm very californian my family on both sides has been here for seven generations so yeah very much speaking from the sort uh, of iconoclastic like unconventional californian position i would say yeah
0: but santa barbara is like the most beautiful place in the country i think
2: it's so gorgeous yeah it really is very beautiful yeah
0: do you ever do you ever miss it I guess you get to go back, right?
2: Yeah, I don't go back very often. She doesn't live there anymore. She lives in uh, near San Luis Obispo. Uh, My brother still lives there. I I love going back there because it is so beautiful, but it's very bougie now, and it it was always very expensive. Like when I I moved away when I was eighteen, I had moved out of the house early when I was seventeen, and I was living. This is in the nineties. I was living in this shack, a shed in someone's yard. Um,
0: like $1,800 a month.
2: No, I was paying, I was paying $450 a <laughs> okay, month, good. but there wasn't, um, like electricity. There wasn't a bathroom. Like I, the, there were literally vines growing through the wall. And then I went up to visit a friend in San Francisco. This was the year before dot, dot com hit and I moved in with my friend in this place in the Western Edition in San Francisco, and it was for, it was $50 less than it was to live in a shed in someone's yard Jesus. in Santa Barbara.
0: Yeah, I know. That's kind of how it was. I remember that was like the way that it was in, in like really nice ski towns in Colorado. Like after I got out of college, I looked at that and was like, there was just nothing. You would have to live in basically like a, a shack.
2: Yeah. Like you, I literally did live in a shack because I just, you know, I was working at a coffee shop. That's I couldn't yet. afford it. Yeah. That was you know? it. And then when I moved to San Francisco, I had an amazing place with huge, you know, high ceilings and, um, big bay windows. And, you know, it was in a, an Edwardian house in the Western edition. It was really gorgeous, but then.
0: You couldn't get that today.
2: No. Oh my gosh. dot com hit while I was living there. And when I moved out of that place, People started calling at five in the morning. We'd put an ad in the paper and overnight it went up to 1250. Jesus. So it tripled. Yeah. In like overnight. That's crazy. It was so crazy. And then all these guys who were like being, they were like successful in the business and the dot com business. And they were all really young. they were like 23. Yeah. And so they would like buy these beautiful old mansions and paint them black and put their gym equipment <laughs> in it. Oh, and, God. It, and, and
0: well, something about that whole scene skews me out. I, I, don't, know, I was talking about really this weird. on a, on a recent episode. I was just like, I don't want to paint with a broad brush. I don't want to prejudge people. I don't want to be sour grapes. Like a lot of these people are making uh, a positive impact on the world somehow, or they're, they're, I don't want to resent their success. Right. But at the same time, it's like that, that bro culture, bro, bro tech freaks me out a little bit.
2: Yeah. I think it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier. Like anytime there's an imbalance of like gender equity, it kind of yields pretty lame stuff. Yeah. So I think,
0: I mean, I I think think that might be sort of at the core of it. And I think that's at the core. Okay. Now I'm really going to be reaching. So you just got to bear with me. But if we're talking about gender imbalance, um, and you're talking about like bro culture run amok. Mm. Like if you think about, um, you know, ISIS, you basically have all these bros who can't get laid, who don't know how to behave around women. Don't know. You know what I'm saying? don't know how to talk to women, don't know mm. how to relate to women. Mm-hmm. It's a very bro centric culture. And then they basically resort out of this frustration, I think, into like enslaving women. Mm hmm. And then you have tech bros in San Francisco. is <laughs> it's, it's an unfair parallel, but you know a lot of these guys. Uh, it's like you know it's it's kind of the the cliche or the caricature of them. But there's a lot of nerdy guys who wind up uh, in computers or whatever, mm-hmm. and then suddenly they've got a bunch of money. They've got a, you know they've got access to like supplements and like a, a home gym and money. You know and they're they're rich and they're driving like a not you know Porsche, and then they have women potentially.
2: Yeah, kind I don't know. of. That,
0: that's a big reach.
2: I'm not sure that they they have women in the way that they want to have women. I, I think don't think
0: ISIS I'm... does either. No, <laughs> <laughs> that's the whole point. Yeah, it just it just seems like things it's are never out of way.
2: satisfying. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, I mean, in theory, the idea that a woman would be subjugated to you, or that she would be obligated to love you, or something, would be satisfying. Like. I can make this thing that I want that, you know, arouses me, that seems to, you know, that compels me, like, sort of dance to my tune and do the thing that I want it to do. And yet, you know, women have subjectivity. So they're not going to do that. Like, they're never going to love you if you treat them like that. Like, they'll be beholden to you. And they'll, you know, because of the women way that, you know, patriarchy has affected women's minds. My friend and I were just talking about this actually about... Um, that show I Love Dick on Amazon, the the the
0: is it pilots based, is come it, out. Is it based on the Chris Krauss book? Yeah, it's
2: based on the Chris Krauss book. And we were talking about the Dick Hebdige character in that pilot and in the book and how he's being such a dick. Like he's really being an asshole, this mansplainer. And yet the Chris Krauss character like still wants his approval and still wants to fuck him, basically. And yet she knows that he's an asshole simultaneously. So I think, you know, for women, that's a real bummer, especially, you know, for heterosexual women is that you can sort of see the way that like men are these sort of flawed characters that you still want their approval and their acceptance and their love. But I also think the same is true for men in our culture. You know, I feel like a lot of men really want to connect. They want intimacy. Like they, they, they want that approval too. they, they want You know, meaningful connections, meaningful relationships with their peers, with other men, with women, they feel a lot of pressure to be this sort of like Superman figure and yet there's not really a way for them to have those things if they behave according to the sort of dominant paradigm of masculinity and it's on that way, patriarchy is really bad for men too. And also if you think about like who dies because of patriarchy, well a lot of women get abused and beaten and killed but if you think about war for instance yeah all that blood spilled is men's blood right you know and they're having they're for ha- they have to run into bullets on behalf of who people like Donald Trump right like that's not a good deal for them like they have other stuff they want to do like with their lives and enjoy and take yeah. pleasure in so
0: well there is i mean i think there is like this whole like life hack culture ted talk culture um, not that all Ted talks I mean, there's a lot of good to be gleaned from Ted talks, but it is sort of like, a, uh, like a secular church for a certain set of people in our culture. And, or at least that's the way that I perceive it. I mean, even the setup is like a mega church, you know, where you have the Madonna microphone mm-hmm. and like the stadium seating and, you know, the finger steeples and like the, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, um, I feel like the whole life hack thing sort of speaks to, what you, what you were just talking about with regard to men feeling pressure to be Superman. Mm. It's like, I've got to have like 2% body fat and sleep three hours a night and like be an ultra marathoner and like be an entrepreneur. And like, you know, that's kind of like what this is. And that's the, there's like this man, this mania of competition and self-improvement that on the outside, I think can seem like really cool. Like, Oh wow, we're perfecting ourselves. We're moving the needle. We're moving humanity forward. But On the other side of it, I sometimes, and maybe this is like the darker side of me, I'm like, they're just trying to fill a big hole, like this constant improvement, achievement, like treadmill that they're on. Like, are you really happy? Like, I sense, I sense sadness in it.
2: Yeah, I think you make a really great point. And I, I think it speaks to our need for spiritual purpose and meaning in general that is not fulfilled and that we're kind of trying to find... I had a similar experience, uh, I think about a year ago, when I went to this writer's party for t- TV writers. Uh, I'm not a TV writer. But, so they're not all, yet. You, not live, yet. If you live in LA. Eventually it'll <laughs> eventually. happen. <laughs> I've worked on scripts, but yeah, I've been that person at a coffee shop. But yeah, so there were a lot of really successful writers there and people from television, a comedy. It was like a comedy party. And, you know, they had money. It was a beautiful house. You know, they were all successful. And yet I looked around the room and the vibe was so neurotic and stressed. And everybody was trying to figure out where they were, like on the totem pole, like who they were talking to and what they could get from that person and whether or not they were higher up on the totem pole than the people below, which was... It was very refreshing and kind of vindicating for me because I I went to grad school in film and video at CalArts. and I never saw, I saw myself always as an artist rather than as like working my way into the film industry but but nevertheless yeah like a I'd, fine artist yeah a fine artist so I, I I never I so but I have written scripts and pilots or whatever and sort of maybe toyed with that idea. And I think like ten years ago being at that party would have been very intimidating for me because there were all these people who kind of seem to have like
0: name people. Yeah,
2: like name people. Like who?
0: Can you name people? Can you name names?
2: No, I'm not gonna name names because I feel like that, you know, like I I feel like that might be rude. But like people off successful shows like Thirty Rock, for instance. Okay. Um, or writers for shows like that, you know? Um and it, it was it was just very illuminating to see how, like, these are the people, everybody in America kind of thinks, like, oh, that's the life. And they were driving up in their, you know, Teslas, in their hot clothes.
0: By the way, the Tesla, to me, as a status symbol, in especially in places like Los Angeles and San Francisco, like, to me, it's like the the Prius of the ultra achiever,
1: Yeah, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Like when
0: you're driving a Tesla, it's like, I have the finest things and I'm like socially conscious at a level that would blow your mind. Like, yeah, I don't know. Whenever I see someone get a Tesla and it's great. It's a nice car.
2: It's an amazing car. It's like like being in a spaceship. I'm
0: like such a dick. I'm just like, Oh, you got it. You know, I always like sort of eye roll at the Tesla.
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't mind Teslas. I just think it's really funny when we have all these things and yet we're still
0: Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So before we go any further, because I don't want to disappoint my listeners, um, I interrupted you when you were talking about the ceremony with your mom and some of her friends when you were with the red string. Yeah, when
2: I was 13. And I asked you
0: where you were, then we got into Santa Barbara. But like, can you just finish that story in case there was something that, you know, people want to know? Yeah,
2: so I was 13. I did a ceremony. It's essentially a an initiation of initiation into womanhood and initiation into witchcraft and initiation into uh, being your own power and authority. And that ultimately gets to what I think witchcraft is really about. You know, witchcraft doesn't have a doctrine like the Bible. It doesn't have a pope. It doesn't have a head figure in witchcraft. Every person who participates is considered a priest or priestess.
0: Can anybody participate? Yeah. Can I?
2: Yeah, you could.
0: But I could be a witch.
2: Yeah, you could be a witch.
0: I'm going to sign up.
2: <laughs> yeah, you should sign up. It's it's really fun and <laughs> but you ha-
0: I mean, But is there any kind of uh, protocol? Like, can I just start calling myself a witch? Or do you have to go through a certain...
2: In theory, I mean, because there are no rules, right? You know, it's essentially an anarchist practice. Yeah. Uh, you could just say, yeah, I'm a witch. And nobody... You don't have to have somebody say that you are one. Although there are certain sects of witchcraft... Um, where you have to go through a a long initiation process, you know, for instance, like the fairy tradition, F-E-R-I, uh, there's many other traditional forms of witchcraft that you do have to go through a long initiation process. But you're an anarchist. I'm an anarcho-witch, I would say. (laughs) Yeah, because I feel like, you know, a lot of those practices, you know, witchcraft really came back into common parlance after the Sort of persecution times of the medieval of medieval Europe um, in 1950s in England, and it w-
0: wait that's when it reemerged. Yeah, yeah, into like modern time, yeah. like 1950s England. Yeah, and what caused that?
2: Um, well, you know, you probably know about the Order of the Golden Dawn, which was a Victorian or, or like late 19th century group in in England that was using like magical practices and practices of the occult.
0: I don't know about that, but yeah. Yeah.
2: Since like William Butler Yeats was part of, part of this group. Like there were a lot of poets and artists and thinkers of the time period that were, um, practicing, like doing ceremonial magic and and practicing magic. Why why do you Mm -hmm. think
0: they were doing that? And why do you think like you do it? And, and and you were just, you were talking about this moments ago with regard to people feeling a need uh, or people having like maybe, um, a lack of spiritual practice or whatever you want to call it in their lives, like that part of their lives, their spirit, however you want to refer to it. Um, they've allowed to atrophy Mm. in the service of pursuing, you know, career success or, you know, whatever it is, material success, relationships, sex, blah, blah, blah. And they let that part of their lives atrophy. Mm. Um, is the, you know what I'm saying? Like, why turn to this particular thing? Why do you think they were doing this? What was called the order of the golden dawn? Yeah. Like, and why do you think your family got into it? Why did it resonate with you? Because, you know, uh, it's, it's often the case that we reject the dogma that our parents try to hand to us. Yeah, I did. You did. I did. You had, you had a, uh, rebellion against it at some point.
2: Yeah. When I, you know, I was sort of grew up in this practice and was very interested in it throughout my you know early early adolescence and into my late teens and then i i just kind of started thinking i was kind of lame you know i thought that it was kind of wishful thinking on beh- on behalf of these women particularly like women in my mother's generation these um second wave feminists that you know i had a A sort of rebellion against, which I think is a natural progression as you sort of individuate, you know, and and become your own person. And I just became way more interested in the arts, you know, and I I really pursued that, and that kind of became my reason for being in my religion in a way. And then what happened was I, you know, I I was really interested in dance in particular, and so I went and studied dance, and I got my undergraduate degree in dance in uh, London. And then I came back and went to CalArts, and by that time, my work had migrated into making films and writing. So kind of an an all-around practice. But I always consider it always about the same stuff, around the same themes. But in any case, when I was in grad school, I was making really angry work, kind of against the patriarchy, against capitalism, you know, against... Was it any good? Uh yeah, I think there I think I made some powerful powerful work, but but it was it was very much sort of in the spirit of being born against. Um pointing out all the things that I didn't think were right. And it, there was a real brutality about it, you know, and um for instance, I made this piece Uh, where it was like a life-size replica of a peep show booth. And you have to go in and witness this work on your own by yourself. And you go in and you watch this video and it's this girl and it's me, but it's a character, right? And she's kind of saying all these very intimate things to you that are kind of lulling you into this idea that you're having a connection with her. But then she ends up kind of, doing all these really brutal acts like against herself and sort of in a passive-aggressive way against What are you, you,
0: like, cutting yourself?
2: No, like, making herself choke, like, doing all sorts of really kind of graphic um, and brutal things. So Um, you sort
0: of, like, lull people into it, and then it's like, fuck you. (laughs) Yeah, kind
2: of. Well, I was really interested in the relationship between desire and horror and our suspension of disbelief specifically in relation to, for instance, pornography, that there's this idea that one might... um, like for instance, we know that women who are in pornography are usually coming from like abusive backgrounds. You know,
0: I was talking about this with my wife last night. Cause we were like flipping channels and it's like, I'm going through like the movie channels. And then suddenly it's like, I want to say it was like a documentary where like, you know, uh, adult film stars were like into like all this, like BDSM. Did I just use that acronym right? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> See, I, I know what I'm talking about. And, um, they were, you know, it was like talking to the camera and then cutting to, you know, had them having sex or being whipped or choked or whatever. Yeah. And it was like, they were, I don't want to, I don't want to denigrate, but they were like trying to, to intellectualize it mm-hmm. in a way that I found really unconvincing.
2: Like they were trying to create all this intellectual framework for why it was an interesting practice and to i'm do just this like and, I, and,
0: I, and all i wanted to say was like what happened to you right and like maybe that's a maybe that's a bullshit response for me but like that's my i was just like what happened like something happened to you like
2: <laughs> yeah i mean i i feel you on that but i also think okay like a large percentage of the people in our culture use pornography like let's say men, like with men, for instance, oh, yeah. I mean probably like ninety five percent of dudes use it, and pornography isn't i think it,
0: I think it's actually really it's has a really uh negative effect, oh yeah, I think, I think it's toxic. it has a
2: really, really, really negative effect, like in my experience, you know, most of the men that I've gone out with have been really badly affected by it, and it's caused them a lot of suffering in their well, life,
0: and it also, but it also like I think it has uh created. A real uh unrealistic idea of what sex is
2: yeah you and- know i
0: mean sometimes it can be instructive or at least like help you like think creatively or whatever but like a lot of times like guys go into sexual encounters mm. with all of this like pornographic uh imagery packed into their heads mm. and like certain expectations about how it would go or what would please a woman yeah and, and it's, it's really, really not the case <laughs> it's really
2: off totally and also it's well it's like eating like high fructose corn syrup at every meal every right. day right. and then and you eat until you're just eating corn syrup and then you go to try and taste something kind of subtle and normal and it tastes like nothing it tastes like cardboard it tastes really bland or i mean i think also like in pornography. The woman's role in much of it, you know, in the sort of popular version is, or within like the sex industry, like within, for instance, like table dancing or what, anything like that. The woman's role is to say, you're so great. Like, I love this. Whatever you're doing, I love it. Right. You know, and that really sends, <laughs> it, it, makes a really, it makes it really difficult to have intimacy because you're expecting that constant confirmation and you're not, you know, and you're not getting it necessarily so what
0: do women in the actual want i know all women are different but like let's try to break this down for guys i
2: think you know this is a really important thing and i'm so glad that you asked me this question because i've been thinking about it a lot because i've been thinking about like all the women the shows that we're seeing by women right now like for instance i love dick or that new show fleabag or that show girls you know the the women in those shows are always having these really unsatisfying sexual encounters with men. Right. Men that they still pursue and still want their attention from. But usually the sexual encounter seems really it's deeply all, unsatisfying. It's
0: all like porn bros. I mean, it's very yeah. porny. And they're,
2: all, and they're always kind of looking at the camera, these girls, being like, this kind <laughs> of sucks. <laughs> like, this guy thinks that he's really doing this great thing, and he's not. Like, yeah. I'm not satisfied. But
0: in the defense of men, I, I should say that, like... In the act of sex, the woman, you know, for... Listen, I'm not trying to paint a, a picture where the woman is at an advantage in our culture, like, writ large. Right. But, like, in the act of sex, the woman is sort of the evaluator. Hmm. I mean, I guess women feel that they have a performance obligation as well.
2: Yeah, I'm not so sure I agree with you yeah. about that. You know, I think the, the... But to sort of answer your question about, like, what do women want? Right. You know, what is, do they want? and I feel like it gets to this idea is... I think women really want intimacy and what I mean by that is they really want to connect with the person they're having sex with. They really want that person to see them and be there with them and like have a moment of real eroticism and real eroticism is about total presence, right? It's about really being there in that moment. With everything that person entails, and for most women, that's really sexy. And I think what happens is, particularly with pornography, and why it's such a sort of deleterious um, in- process of engagement for men, is that it teaches men to completely cut off from what is actually happening. Like, for instance, like as I was saying, the women in pornography aren't probably really enjoying it. Like. Cannot, they're in front of lights. They've had to do it a million times. Like
0: the ones who can can convincingly portray enjoyment are maybe the best actors in the world.
2: Yes, and most of the time they're not. And, and most of the time, there's just a suspension of disbelief because we want so badly to think, "Oh, this woman loves me. She loves my dick. Like everything about me is hot, and this is hot, and it's a sexy experience." But then the problem is when you go to actual actually have sex with a real woman, you know, you're sort of interaction with her is not that sexy. And here's the thing though, a lot of the time it makes men like unable to perform like in, like when they're having sex with a real woman, because suddenly there's this other person, a human being there. And I, I I find that really sad because, you know, most of the time, like women genuinely just really do want to, Be Like they're in bed with that person for a reason, you know, like they want to be there. But then it's really sad and frustrating to, to have that encounter be like suddenly the person that you're with and you're, you know, on a date with or that you're married to or, you know, that you're intimately engaged with, you know, that you feel so close to most of the time. And then you start to have sex with them and it's like they just short circuit. Like they're they suddenly leap out of the room. it's like this weird disassociation process, like they're not there anymore and and that's got i mean I've never met a man I met a lot of men who had that problem. I've never met a man who found that satisfying for himself, you know, so I think it's really sad that 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 we live in a culture that that pulls us out of our bodies and our experience our intimate experience with one another so much and I feel like witchcraft and and what I'm doing is really about creating a sense of intimacy with, with, yourself, with yourself, with the world, with other people that you're engaging with, with everything around you. It's How? about removing that disassociation, reunification. Through
0: what? Like what, what like actual practices?
2: Okay. So, you know, a lot of the, the pra- practices that a witch might use are used, you know, basically in all mystical traditions worldwide so for instance um meditation is really key so
0: which is meditate
2: which is med- meditate i meditate all the time i'm a witch <laughs> you are you, i'm on my way yeah, see, we see that you have some <laughs> real witch sympathies that's here. right um well so for instance like one practice that i'm really into right now is a really simple one so you anybody could do this right so it's a listening practice and So just when you find yourself um, kind of running your scripts, right, you're you're going about your day and then you're finding yourself kind of pissed off and miserable and ruminating on all sorts of shitty things that are going on or your frustrations or whatever. What's really important in that moment is to break yourself out of that script that you're running, because that's a lack of intimacy that you're having with the world. You're suddenly caught up in your own mind. You're cut off physically from engaging with the true world that's around you.
0: Yeah. You're in the static.
2: Yeah, exactly. You're, you're not in the presence of the magnificent reality, which we're living in. So you, so in this listening practice, you start just by stopping and listening. So you might listen, for instance, to the sounds that are closest to you. You might listen to your own breathing, the the this fucking dog next the door. Do- <laughs> the dog next door. The fan, and then you expand your consciousness to hear the birds in the trees, the traffic, the train that's going by, the airplane overhead, and like allow your consciousness to extend. The police chopper. The police chopper, because yeah. that's a part of your reality. Yeah. And by doing that, you know part of that training is allowing you to then listen to something that's even beyond that, the sort of universal hum that reunifies us because it reminds us that we're we're all connected there's no real division the only real division is between in language the fact that you and i are even separate beings is really only executed through language through the way that we define reality because if we zoomed out and we saw this room from above There's no real separation.
0: Right. This is very Buddhist.
2: It's very Buddhist, but it's, it's actually very mystical because Buddhism in it is a form of mysticism. And so is like mystical Christianity or many shamanistic practices or Sufism. You know, they're all speaking about the same thing because ultimately when you have a mystical experience and you encounter the divine, which for witches is... Reality is presence, is material manifestation, is what is here. That's where the real magic is. And most of the time we're just cut off from that. We're just separated from that.
0: Because we're locked up in our minds.
2: Because we're locked up in our minds. And that's exactly what gets in the way of eroticism. Because, you know, the the idea of eros is about fundamentally about connection. It's about seeing the relationship between things, as opposed to say logos, which is about separating things, about distinguishing, about sort of scientific forms of classification and measurement, which is useful, but it shouldn't be the only way that we operate. And so, you know, when we when we can listen, like when we can listen with our bodies, like when we can listen with our bodies to our partner and really be with that person, it's so much more rewarding and sexy and extremely hot than it is to sort of be... By yourself with another person kind of masturbating on them or whatever, <laughs> you know, like that's not really very hot. I think a lot of people think it is because they don't know the alternative. But in my opinion, it isn't. So and
0: guys, guys out there, you, you need to focus more on your partner. Be you more present, be
2: more present, be more willing to be, you know, vulnerable and with them. And
0: like, what is this? Make more eye contact because you can creep somebody out, too. Yeah. So suddenly, just like looking him in the eye.
2: I mean, I, I I dated this guy once, who actually another friend of mine also dated, and
0: so you guys could compare notes.
2: Yeah, we could. We compare notes. Perfect. That's probably something that terrifies men. About, <laughs> yes. About yes. I just
0: I, I just broke out into a cold sweat.
2: But yeah, so he had this thing where he would like stare really deep.
0: But he was trying to do it right and He fucked it up No
2: he didn't Both well, of us were like Fuck yeah bring it on You dude. like that We liked it
0: Okay We did
2: I mean I'm not I can't speak for all women Yeah But that was pretty hot just I have to say
0: Not even blinking
2: It just felt really hot To just Have him Like during the act you.
0: During the act of sex Just like eye contact Yeah Okay
2: That was awesome Alright I mean there were a lot of other things about him That were annoying But you know He, <laughs> he, he was pretty it, Sexually is was doing pretty good
0: Okay. See, that's the thing, though. People can be really good at sex, but then, like, the rest of it's just a disaster.
2: Yeah. I mean, we all have our skills. We all have our
0: skills. (laughs) Um, So, what do you do? Like, now, like, you're the Oracle of LA.
2: That's my job.
0: Okay. And so, you go around, like, explain what that entails.
2: Well, so, most of the time, you know, I work with clients one on one. So they come to me and whatever problem they're working on in their lives, we use magic and all sorts of other means and modalities to sort of approach that and tackle that. And some of it is really straightforward, just like coaching, for instance. Um, some of it is like ceremonial theater or play that allows one to sort of remove the obstacles that prevent them from getting the things that like they want. Like
0: your play acting?
2: Yeah, well, so I mean, it's a kind of liturgy, right? It's Like all the you're
0: wearing costumes.
2: I tend to try and look my witchy best okay. when I'm doing my <laughs> my work.
0: You gotta have yeah, you gotta have some witch gear. Yeah, you can't I have to mean, show up. I
2: don't always like. Sometimes I I bring it more than other times, but generally I try to. You know, I try got some
0: and, I feel like this is somewhat yeah, it's like I mean, casual witch is, attire casual wish, she's yeah. got like a nice necklace with a medallion what do you call it Lapis okay.
2: necklace that's got like moon shapes on it and I've got a quartz crystal okay um, what does quartz do uh it's just an amplifier of energy it clarifies and amplifies and
0: whatever. you believe that stuff works the crystals work
2: uh, yes
0: or is it just like a talisman or a placebo like you know what I'm saying like I'm fine with it either way. Yeah. Does this stuff actually like have a vibration in it or something that.
1: I
2: think that's a really good question. And I think it also. Like for me. Knowing whether or not. Crystals. Actually scientifically. Sort of from an. From that kind of perspective have. Are efficacious. Is not really my. Business. My business is. That. that by working with them, I feel like I receive, I I achieve results and I achieve the results that I want to achieve. So whether or not it's through a placebo effect or whether or not it's through there's actual amplification process with these crystals, then,
0: um, it's like a reminder though, at the very, at the very least. You're like, oh, I got this crystal. It's an amplifier of my energy. Right. So like whatever energy you have, it's going to like ratchet it up, whether it's positive or negative.
2: Right. But it's also the associations that you have with it make it be true. I right. mean, if, and like we can think of many, many abstractions like that. It's like for instance, money is not real. You know, it's a completely an invention, and the, there's an object that's associated with money, a dollar bill. And it only really has any value because we ascribe certain values to it. But that's not to say it doesn't have serious power in the world, right? right? Like it has like the most power. Right. So, you know, uh, I think a lot of the things with magic are kind of yes. And there's a sort of ambiguity about them that I'm really, not only am I really comfortable with, but is really an intrinsic and important part of what we're doing because you're using all these tools and implements to sort of reach at something powerful within you, some kind of shift that you're looking for, and uh, all of the sort of theatrical accoutrements of that are what bring you to that place. And I also think, for instance, like you're using like gods and goddesses and spirits and calling them in. I'm doing a lot of, you know, chanting and incanting and all sorts of things and of course the question from a sort of uh, secular humanist, you know, contemporary perspective might be, you know, are those real? Are those gods real? Are you calling in real spirits? Do fairies exist? And
0: Yeah, do fairies exist? Yes. <laughs> fairies exist. <laughs> they do.
2: Fairies absolutely exist. You, have you seen a fairy? Yes. You have. I have seen fairies. Where? I've seen fairies in Scotland.
0: Okay, that's, what, that's
2: see,
1: where they would be. I,
0: I
2: see fairies all the time. Like they're just around. They're just here to be sort like of witnessing. Flying and flying little like like Tinkerbell? here's the thing. Here's the thing, though. Okay. Is that, like this goes back to the um, that sort of Harry Potter vision version. Is that, you know, we want the movie version, right? Where there's like literally Tinkerbell like sitting there hovering in front of you and you could like hit her out of the way with a baseball bat. I was always
0: kind of attracted to Tinkerbell. She is
2: really sexy. She's hot. I mean, and she's spicy. Yeah. And we like that. (laughs)
0: She's got that. She's got sass. She's
2: she's got that sass (laughs) and I'm into it. I totally love Tinkerbell too. Um, Yeah, but so most of the time when witches are talking about like spiritual entities that they see, like they're doing it in a deep trance state. And so a lot of the time, you know, people would say, well, that's just your imagination. But for which that just your imagination is exactly the wrong way of thinking about it. Every human thing that is in existence, whether it's a Tesla or a cross or money or whatever is there because of our imagination. We imagined it and we brought it into existence. And we can think of the imagination as a, as a porthole to the spirit realm as to the realm of consciousness and all religions in their mystical aspect talk about that realm of consciousness, which is the realm of non-being, non-materiality. And there is clearly a link, right? If we think about our brain, our consciousness, um, you know, how is it that this, Silicon and carbon That's kind of this wet mush Has access to Creativity, abstract thought Like emotion uh, Memory, storytelling, narrative You know, where is that coming from? Well, you know, a lot of traditions Including my own would say That it comes from the realm of consciousness The realm of dark matter, you might say And that we enter into that space Through the imagination And it's through that space, through the imagination That everything is connected And that we can um, that we can get information that will be helpful and useful to us. Every night when we go to sleep, we go into that realm a little bit. We go into the realm of the imagination, into the spirit world, and then we come back. And then, you know, when we die, we go in and we don't come back. Right. But so,
0: and you believe when we die, that's it?
2: Um, no, I, uh, I, I don't believe that when we die, that's it, because of the experiences that I've had doing the shamanic practice that I do which is where you do deep trance states to go into that spirit world and sort of travel around in there and because I've done that and because I've done that in groups with other people where we haven't talked to one another um but before the process but then after the process we compare notes and have so many similarities to me it seems like a good enough evidence to suggest that um there was some merit to to what we were doing that there was um There was a a deeper level, a deeper level that, that I feel confident, uh, is there is some kind of truth to that. But I also think that it's really important. Like when we're thinking about belief to, to not ask necessarily whether or not it's true, but whether or not it's useful and, and, and how it's useful and who it's useful to, like, who does it help? Does it help you? Does it help me to believe that these things are true? And in my life, it's totally transformed my life. Like it's changed my life. It's made my life so much better. And it makes the lives of my clients so much better
0: to what, to like have a little, like to, to feel that life is a magical, um, enterprise or, yeah,
2: do you know what I I mean? Mean, to, to
0: introduce like that element of it. And I mean, I can kind of see that I resist magical thinking. If mm-hmm. that's what you want to call well, it. Like why? Uh, I'm just as I, I like to, I'm skeptical. I think by nature and, uh, I like when I can see proof, mm-hmm. um, I'm loath to believe in things that I don't have like an evidence procedure for. Mm. I have a hard time making that leap.
2: Yeah. But so if you think, I mean, you're a writer, right? Yeah. And so you've found probably a lot of rewards in use, for instance, in literature. Yeah. And that's all made up okay so that's all like from the realm of the imagination why do you, why do you feel like literature has merit but then some sort of other practice that might be for instance like going into the spirit world in a shamanic way and like retrieving information isn't that viable. i can that i
0: can get i think that i can get uh into like where you're like i mean like are you talking about like like shamanism like uh like peyote trances and sweat lodges and ayahuasca and all that kind of stuff?
2: Yeah. Well, shamanism is basically like the, the sort of basic, most fundamental aspect of shamanism is like people who journey into the spirit world in one way or another, whether or not it's through using drumming or it's through spinning like the Sufis do or using ayahuasca or, you know, have
0: you it, done all of these things?
2: I've never spun.
0: You've never, Neither have I. <laughs> be a horrible
2: spinning in like the gym in hollywood yeah that's right
0: i spin and I i
2: do have mystical experiences my my dead uncle used to always visit me for some reason
0: while you're on the bike
2: yeah you know he my uncle and his husband um who are really great and full of life and for some reason, I would always really feel their presence strongly when I was in spinning class. Weird. I don't know. Were that. they big cyclists? No. No. No, not at all. I don't no. know why they would always come to See, me See, but there.
0: you're just like the kind of, I've pe- people like this. You can f- feel the presence of your uncle, like your antenna is up. Like my, I never have any of this shit.
2: Well, maybe you'd need to do more of these meditation I practices that help I
0: you. I meditate every day. But I, I don't think uh, you do
2: like Zen meditation. Right. Which is very different. I gotta spin. Well, because you're not well in Zen meditation you're trying to cease all thought and just be completely present. Which is a great practice. I think it's really useful. But it's not going to like Zen like the I used to practice Zen quite a lot and my Roshi wanted us to keep our eyes open. And I think partially so that we don't have visions, like you're not supposed to be having visions. You're not supposed to be indulging in that kind of thinking. Yeah. And fair enough. You know, that's not their practice, but
0: what I, what kind of meditation are you talking about? This is like getting into trance states and stuff. And
2: yeah. So for instance, a really important uh, meditation, which I will soon have up on my website. I think I might already have it up there um, for, which is, is uh, a grounding meditation where you connect, you know, through your spine and through your roots, like into the earth and, um, pull up the energy of the earth. And, you know, it takes a long time. Like it takes like six weeks of doing it really diligently before you even understand really why you would do it. Um, but it does really help you. It it really transforms your life, especially, I think it's a really important practice for women in particular. Men seem to have more access to their power a lot of the time, but a lot of the time for women, like they just don't, they find it really hard to feel like, empowered within themselves, within their lives. So doing this grounding practice is really essential for you to, to feel like you have a right to be here, to feel like you're connected to everything else, to feel like you're not going to get blown away, to have confidence in who you are and, and your perspective and your experience of the world. And I'm not saying everybody needs to do that but i'm saying that the people generally who come to me do need to do that like that's something that they're really working on in their lives and that when they do do it they start to see massive results like things change they get different jobs they start making more money they start falling in love like they you know they are more open to their creative practices and processes all of those things start happening and it seems like why should that happen just from doing this meditation but it does hmm. and it has for me
0: so you're like a you're like a shrink which,
2: Yeah, I mean, d- like Carl Jung, for instance, um, studied a lot of mysticism and mystical practices. And uh, the first scientists, you know, in the Western world were alchemists. And Plato, who, and even to a lesser degree, Aristotle, you know, who we base Western philosophy on, was extremely mystical. And he was drawing from even more mystical traditions so you know rather than saying like what i'm doing is like a shrink i think what shrinks are doing is like what i'm doing only it's not as aesthetic
0: or a shaman i think shaman is shaman a better word maybe
2: shamanism is is, like the oldest religion i feel confident saying that and it happens like in every tradition you know and that's where i seem like what i'm doing is part of my my art practice you know art comes out of Shamanism. It comes out of the spiritual practice of engagement with the reality around us. And I feel interested in getting back to that because I feel like art has become so commodified. It's so much just about the sales of the object or putting ourselves within a hierarchy that pleases the hegemonic power system. And I'm not satisfied with that. I feel like, you know, by. By making us all feel empowered, all feel connected to source, all feel connected to the greater reality, I feel like it it inspires us to break the sort of colonization of our minds that it make us think like things have to be a certain way. we have to like we have to grow up, we have to get a job, we have to like start you know getting. 401ks and stuff like that. And all of that stuff is smart to do because we live within the system. But what we don't realize is that we don't have to live within the system. The system only is happening because we all agree to make it happen. And we agree to do it because we're afraid that if we don't, if we don't that we'll
0: die. Be, or be left behind. We'll be left behind.
2: Yeah. You know, that we'll be out in the cold. But like... We're really powerful. And if we realize how much agency we have, then maybe things wouldn't be as bad as they are right now.
0: Yeah. Things are dark right now. I feel like
2: they are. How do
0: we like, how do we fight the darkness? Like, you know, cause I think a lot of people are freaking out. Like you were, we were talking, I think before we came on about people panicking, like mm. genuinely panicking about Donald Trump and how dangerous this all feels naming like, you know, a climate change denier as the head of the environmental yes. protection agency. Like this is insanity. Yeah. And what I'm wrestling with is on the one hand, uh, the, the panic. And Mm then on the, on the other hand saying, don't panic. And then on the other hand saying, actually panic is a proportionate response to what's happening. This should be very urgent. And I think like you can, you can lull yourself into the no panic side of the equation as a way of, uh, trying to distance yourself or, you know, put it to the side or not think about it. Which, you know, I get you like for the purposes of mental and physical health, you can't spend all of your days spend, you know, obsessing about Trump, Yeah, but we do have to engage. Like, what's the, where do we strike a balance on this? And like, how should a person uh, behave? (laughs) You know?
2: I mean, I think it, it fundamentally comes down to, to care, to caring about ourselves, to caring about each other and to creating those alliances with one another. You know, by ourselves in our house, you know, we can do our meditations and feel powerful in that way, but unless we unless we create powerful allies amongst ourselves, then you know, our magic's not going to work. We need collective magic in order to, you know, make these shifts happen to bring things back to right again. I think it's also really important You know, to exercise compassion and to notice the people sort of on the fringes of the right that we could try and draw through our compassion and understanding over to the side of reason and, and health, health for, you know, ourselves, health for them, health for our our planet.
0: Yeah. I guess like, you know, the, the actual metrics of it. Uh, first of all, I want to say like less than half of the country voted. It was like 47. I I might be messing up the number, but it's right around half or just less than half of the, um, voting eligible population voted. Yeah. I think I have that number, right? But when you actually parse the numbers, Trump was elected via the electoral college by 20% of the population of this country. So it's a very small or, you know, it's a a relatively small minority of people who put this guy into office. It's not Mm -hmm. like the overwhelming majority of citizens. It's like there's this voting plurality that comes up to about 20%.
2: Yeah, well, isn't there some sort of saying within, like, the social sciences that, like, a 10% of the population that feels very radically about something can change the entire tradition, like for, for good or bad. You know, that's that's positive in the sense that like, if we have people, 10% of the people really aiming for good things, then, but yeah, I, yeah, I feel like this
0: is good for business for you though. I was saying this to a friend of mine who teaches yoga. I'm like, business is going to be booming for the next four years. Yeah. Stress relief yeah fairies, like bring it. I need some magic in my life because it's so dark,
2: yeah well, a lot of the practices that I and other witches like me, like if you follow us on Instagram or whatever, um you'll see a lot about self care and caring for others and caring for one another and and, 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 especially, and also about participation and
0: well, and especially caring for people who might be uh endangered by this, yeah. you know like uh people like, of color yes, vulnerable felt, you know vulnerable communities gay,
2: lesbian. Um,
0: like I was thinking, I was listening to an interview with John Stewart or reading an interview with him. Um, and it, well, you know, it, it was, this thought has occurred to me and I have seen it repeatedly, uh, in a variety of places online, but, um, this is the most prominent example. And it was basically like, you know, you got to stay calm. It's not going to help anybody if we're all freaking out at a fever pitch, mm-hmm. but basically like watch carefully what goes on. And especially if they start targeting vulnerable populations, like we should go to them like moths to a flame. Mm-hmm. And like, that's where you can put your action. Yeah. Cause if people do that, like that's something you can con- you know, concretely do that yeah. will have an impact. And that's very necessary because, you know, if these people are isolated and if nobody acts, then things could get, I think things could get ugly.
2: Yeah, I think we're already seeing things getting ugly and perhaps this whole thing is just exposing an ugliness that was already there sort of percolating beneath the surface. I mean, it certainly seems that, you know, people of color have been saying, you know, like, we're getting arrested, we're getting killed, we're getting put into jails, like we're being marginalized, we're being oppressed. And, you know, just having them say that wasn't enough to make people really stand up, you know, to, make, to have the rest of the population stand up and say, yeah, this is intolerable. And, you know, because we had tolerance for that kind of behavior, you know, things have escalated and gotten worse.
0: And then you elect this guy and it sort of empowers the worst of the worst, I think, to yeah. feel like they're justified in their beliefs and their behaviors. And you see more hate crimes and you see a spike in violence against people. And it's just, it's so disheartening.
2: It really is. And I think, you know, the people who are feeling particularly vulnerable and brokenhearted and just devastated and can't get out of their beds and are finding it hard to cope, like we can't really expect them to sort of pull themselves up by their bootstraps and like be able to know how to deal. But I do think that for those of us who can find a way to cope, then we are obligated to to try. To try and make things better, to try and forge connections and be compassionate, but also to fight hard.
0: Yeah. You, you got to resist. I mean, like I yeah. did a podcast after, uh, like right after the election, I was very shell shocked, but I just turned on the microphone and I talked for like an hour.
1: Yeah.
0: And I'm very curious to see, and like, I, I sort of cringe when I have this thought, it's like, I wonder how it's going to age. <laughs> like, I kind of tried to talk over politics. I was reeling, you know, like I think most of us are, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. And, uh, I wonder if I went like, it, was I too soft? Cause I was talking about like, you know, trying to see things holistically and what you were talking about earlier about bringing people over and like not excluding listening more to yeah. people who might not have the same perspective that we do. Yeah. Like I think that is part of the solution, but then there's also like, you know, fuck this. Like we cannot, Stand for this. The
2: scariest thing, I think, is that really what we're talking about is direct action, like putting your body on the line. So, for instance, like with the environmental stuff, like, like so much of that is becoming such a huge existential threat to to life as we know it on Earth. That at what point are we going to say, like, no, that that power plant can't be there, and we're going to go tear it down or block it or make it so that people can't go in there it's like the policy is we're going to see you know it's already sort of failing to a certain degree but then now like putting people in the head positions of that um you know the of the environmental protection agency who are like climate change deniers like it's like it's our petitions on facebook are not going to right matter right. and i think what's really scary is that like when you do start doing direct action and you start putting your body on the line then like you are physically at risk you know there's a real genuine threat to your safety and the safety of people that you love and care about and you know i like the idea of democracy that we don't have to do that you know but I think that th- the question now on everybody's mind is like, at what point do we start
0: civil disobedience?
2: Yeah. Civil disobedience, like
0: nonviolent resistance. That's Not what I'm yet. all about. You know, yeah. like I think that, uh, you know, if you get enough people together, the problem is that like, if violence flares up, um, it's very damaging to the, to the cause because then you can just see how the other side could point at it and be like, look, you know, like it delegitimizes it. Yeah. But then, if yeah. people are coming at you with billy clubs, you know, like it just gets very uh, tricky. But I guess that's- it
2: is very tricky. And Also, the thing is, like, well, I, I'm, not, I don't necessarily think that nonviolence is always like the best way forward. But I do think in this situation, it is because, like, there's no way that that our side could hope to win in a in a in a militarized Culture like ours, like with all the drones and the
1: yeah. flash
2: grenades and the you know like water cannons, like we can't we can't resist on through violence. It yeah, wouldn't but, work.
0: But like the thing too is that like especially on climate science, we have the winning argument. Mm. We have the truth on our side. Yeah, like it's very. I mean, and I, I'm I'm basing this on you know. Like a uh, overwhelming scientific consensus, you can see the satellite imagery. Yeah. Like, I'm I'm not a scientist either, but I I believe in science yeah. I'm trusting the experts of the world who are like have been sounding the alarm bell on this. And then I'm also looking at the rest of the uh you know the rest of the world, right? And like pretty much everybody is like on board with this and recognizes the grave danger. So it's like it's just an overwhelming amount of evidence.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so you have you have that truth on your side. And I, I feel like the majority of people will eventually respond to that. No one's su- People aren't suicidal or maybe they are. Maybe that's what this election was. Like there has been a thought process in my head that like what just happened was born of a kind of desperation that is not entirely dissimilar to a person committing suicide. Yeah. Like just such despair, such rage, such anger, such hurt that their vision or their thought processes are so clouded over that they take self-destructive action.
2: Yeah. Well, it's kind of a design flaw on the part of human beings that we can only really see like what's immediately in front of us and when we look for security, you know, that 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 security in the short term can take primacy over, you know, our long-term health and I suppose it has to be that way sort of on an evolutionary level like we have to think of the danger right of, in front of us before we consider the sort of long-term yeah. impact but yeah i i read about um these people in canada who were living in the town that like the tar sands um
1: like the oil yeah the yeah.
2: fracking things started happening and they were jobless for like you know 10, 20 years, the town really went down the drain, and they started to, you know, the the oil companies started to come into the neighborhood, and all these environmentalists came in and said, you know, this is going to be really bad for you. Like, you're going to get cancer. It's going to destroy your hometown. And they were like, get the fuck out of here. Like, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. We need these jobs. And they got these jobs, and now like they have cancer, and their kids have cancer. And, and somebody interviewed the guy, this guy, who... Live there, and they were like why didn't you why didn't you believe the people that said that you were going to be really hurt by this and he just said, you know i just couldn't i couldn't believe it because I needed that job right you know like I needed to be able to put food on the table, and if I believed that, then you know it wouldn't it wouldn't put food on the table. I would have to find a different solution i I think it does get down to fundamentally questions about You know, belief and how we come to the idea of what is true. And again, I think it comes down to this idea of like, who does our truth benefit? Like who benefits if we believe that climate change is real and who benefits if we don't, it tells us a lot, whether or not it's true.
0: Yeah. And the way people arrive at their beliefs, like it's complicated. Like that's something I was saying too. It's like, I resist the notion that people who voted for Trump are like, like they're just idiots, or they're right. just hateful racists. Like that's that oversimplification. Um, I think hurts the cause of mm-hmm. making a better world. You know, because if you start if, that, if that's what you start name calling like that, you're never going to reach anybody yes. and bring them over <laughs> to your side. Yeah. Um. You know, I think it's a, it was a foolish thing to do.
2: Yeah, and a lot go. of it was. I mean, it is really <laughs> hateful and racist. Like that, we would like sort of sacrifice. Put like. Put the sanctity of other people up on the altar and say like, "Oh, you're a worthwhile sacrifice. Like your health and happiness is a worthwhile sacrifice for me. Like that is really hateful." But yeah,
0: but with I, that vote, I mean, because that argument I've heard too, and it's like, well, it's like you sort of find yourself nodding. But um, I have family members who voted for Trump. I'm sure who yes. who I love. Yeah. And it's like, I try to reconcile that, you know, it's like, I don't know who they are. Like, you know, yeah. Trump voters, a lot of times don't say that they voted for Trump, um, unless they're in, I think quarters where they're with other Trump voters, but like people in my family, cause I'm sort of like the, you know, I'm more of, I'm probably the most left person in my entire family. Yeah. Um, and maybe like, I don't know, I feel like people wouldn't tell me, but <laughs> it's like, how do you reconcile that?
2: Yeah. I mean, my, my father is a. Loud and proud Trump supporter, and has many opinions that I feel are just like outrageously wrong and even bordering on evil and genocidal. And he also, you know, is a challenging person to relate to, and yet also has a lot of loving qualities, um, you know. And cast a spell on him. (laughs) Yeah, well. (laughs) don't think i haven't thought about it but yeah i mean i think the question that you're asking or sort of posing in a maybe a rhetorical sense is like you know are people who voted for trump evil <laughs>
0: i hope not i don't think so i got i believe people are redeemable i think there's a lot of pain out there i think some of them really have a lot of hate yeah in them and i think that's you know that's truth in some cases like you see video of it i've seen it online a million times and you're like wow that's a person filled with rage
2: and misery and suffering and i think it, it comes from not seeing the alternatives i think so that's part of like with the work that i do is really about presenting alternatives like for instance like yeah a lot of guys for instance like think that you know misogyny will get them what they want but what they don't know is what they're missing. Like the hot sex that they're missing having by not being able to connect with like a real woman in real space. Like they think they're getting something really great, but they're not.
0: I guarantee you, Donald Trump does not look Melania deeply in the no, eye. No,
2: I guarantee you. I mean, dude is not having hot sex. Like he yeah. might think he is, but like there's no way. You can look at that guy or any of those guys on the sort of like Republican team there and you're like, no like it's a lot of, I don't Vi- believe lot of viagra you.
0: and hypertension
2: exactly yeah. like come over to our side where things are better you know <laughs> like we, we like on our side we want we want like art people to take care of one another we want to have like you know sexy experiences it's like beautiful over here. There's going to be trees, gardens, Come
0: on, <laughs> yeah, Right? Clean air, uh, yeah, clean water.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: So, okay. So before I let you go. Childcare. Um, just so that, like, because I want, I want uh, listeners to have as clear of a picture of what you do as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just finished a novel. Yeah. I'm going Congratulations. out. Thank you. I think I'm going to go out with it uh, next year, I hope, if my agent thinks it's ready uh, or ready enough. Um, let's say I came to you as a client. Yeah. And I said, I have this. Yeah, I want things to go well. Mm-hmm. Can you like, you know, you know, like briefly take us through what you might do with somebody like me?
2: Yeah. So should I dim
0: the lights? <laughs> do you want me to like set the mood? Oh, you want
2: me to actually do it here? No, I can't. I have to have my tools. I don't. I'm not gonna like take you through a spell. Oh, you're not right here. No. Do you have to have tools. Yeah, it's not like I. I don't really enjoy just sort of like doing it like sitting in front of a microphone without like public incantations and, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah i mean i do i do public performances but like i prepare for them for a long time right and,
0: but like on the spot in the grocery store like you're not going to be like suddenly yeah out the i feel like
2: it puts me too much in a position of like trying to prove to you that like what i'm doing is like valuable like i i and i don't like operating from that position like part of Part of what I would do if you came to me is like it's a co-creative practice. So, for instance, like we would, we might look at like we'd probably like look at a bit of tarot cards to like see what your options are, obstacles that might be facing you, like strengths um, and assets that you have that maybe you weren't aware of, and then we would like call in the spirits, call in spirits that we thought that we. Think would help you if be if service to you, um, and then we would probably target like three labors or things that you would have to do in order to make your dream come true in this in this case. So you know, d- we depending on what your obstacles might be. So you would actually have to do physical things in real life. It's not just like you light a candle in your life you know, God it's completely it. transformed. <laughs> yeah.
0: There goes my dream.
2: Yeah, but no, but but so, but you would see that through the magical practices that we did that you're, that synchronicities start opening up for you, that you might see possibilities that you didn't see before, that you might get um, uh, doors open that maybe weren't there before. But that's also like, when you're doing magical practices, you can't sort of aim, be like, unrealistically far beyond what you really have like realistic goal of achieving like for instance i'm a witch you know i have a a, a, uh you know i'm sitting here talking to you about like ways of orgasm or whatever on like public television (laughs) i'm never i'm never gonna be like president for instance like at least not the way the world is so so if i did a spell to make myself be president my spell wouldn't work right you know that's like an unrealistic goal yeah but if for instance like i did a spell to you know get a grant from you know a funding body that i'd been working with already that's like more realistic and there are things that i can do to do that but i might have to do my spells like in incremental steps to get where i want it. so you know for instance like if your book is good you know if you've done your due diligence up into that part then the spell that we do could open the way for you to like um to it's like a master- get it, it's a masterpiece, get it by the into way. the right hands, it's fucking unbelievable. Oh, I've, I can see that. <laughs> I mean, you're very charming. I'm oozing so. with confidence. Yeah, you're oozing confidence. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, effortless. You know? Yes. So, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think like, well, what do you feel like your biggest obstacles would be? Because that might be something that we would work on.
0: Well, I mean, you know, the thing about it is that at that stage of the process, like once you've got the manuscript where you want it. Then you hand it off to your agent and you just sort of sit there and wait for the phone to ring. Mm -hmm. So one of my obstacles would be not spending my entire day, like staring at my phone, Mm -hmm. um, dealing with that anxiety of like, you know, is it going to go Are people going to like it or is Mm -hmm. anyone going to pick it up? Like Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Um, dealing with disappointment because inevitably there will be rejections. I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, sometimes books, everybody wants it and they, you know, there's like a bidding war, but
2: like Jade's book. Like, who's Jade Chang? Is that just... what,
0: yeah, is that what happened with those? Yeah, hers? like, oh, yeah, everybody just wanted, everybody
2: was like, sign me up
1: for that.
0: Yeah, so yeah. I mean, that, that, I mean, hopefully that would be the case, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's the, I think that's the exception and not the rule. So, you know, just trying to navigate that emotional minefield of powerlessness. Yeah, it's one of my least favorite parts of publishing is when you hand it off because, there's nothing I can do.
2: Yeah, right, nothing I
0: can do. At least when you're writing, you're in control of the, the situation, you can affect. The quality of the work, you know, but once you pass it off, it's out of your hands.
2: Well, so in that case, you might want to do some Jupiterian spells, right? So Jupiter is the planet of expansion and good luck. So you might want to do some work in relation to that. So you'd also want to, for instance, like do work on behalf of Jupiter. So Jupiter, you know, deals with the law, with justice, um, with education. So you might want to like give money to like, uh, educational, uh, organization, for instance, maybe one related to your book. So you'd kind of want to start cultivating and developing that relationship beforehand. And, um, you could also start, you know, like maybe you might engage in, for instance, like, because he does love education, you might like take a class or something, which might enable you to sort of take your mind off of, um, what you're, what you're doing. But yeah, there would be like candles and herbs and, like mojo bags and talismans and invocations and, and all of that kind of stuff that it would really depend on. Like if you were really wanting to focus on like dealing with disappointment or if you want to focus on like getting your book through in which case, if you're really wanting to focus on getting your book through, you might want to look at specific allies that you, um, you know, you might not know that you have, you might not be aware of. So it might be just like putting in phone calls to, um,
0: everybody who's ever been on this podcast. Yes. <laughs>
2: that would be a pretty effective
0: uh, look so, out I'm, if you're listening, I'm going to call you soon.
2: Yeah. Well, so a lot of this thing, like, so the magic, for, like, um, you know, it's a saying in magic, like first, first, comes the working and then comes the work. So magic is a way of first, you know, you do your magical working right. so that you like understand where you are in position to the obstacles that you have and the opportunities that you have. And then you do the work based on that. So part of what doing the magic does and helps you do is to recognize where you have power and to then utilize that and to then act on that um instead of sort of just sitting around waiting for the phone to ring because that's not a very empowered position right you know but like the thing is a lot of the things that we do you know it, like a lot of magical practices are really about getting yourself into a position where you feel empowered, where you feel like you have choices, because, you know, you do want to do magical working so that things, so that the world goes according to your desire. Like, we want to get our desire. We want to have our way. We want to get what we want, and we can do what we can to make that happen. You know, I've done spells, like, for instance, where I was, like, really broke, and then somebody gave me 10,000 dollars, like out of the blue for instance. Wow. But you don't always get such a clear-cut result as that, you know, like a lot of the time like you're being called upon to just find, you know, t- more strength, more power, like more um like more clarity about your real purpose or what you're really trying t- to do. So like the thing is like y- in terms of writing, like we can't create a world where everything is completely as you want it to be because there's other agents out there like there's other actors in the field like there's other powerful magicians right who are out there doing their own magic i don't know
0: know where my strength is in terms of like what's my strength level as a magician or as a an actor in the on the field
2: well what do you think it is i don't know
0: what's you you're the witch what kind of vibe am i giving off
2: (laughs) i mean my sense is that you're quite a powerful actor in the field and that If anything were to be holding you back, it would be your sense of, you know, too many options, like seeing that like things could go so many different ways that you could direct your energy in many different ways, but that like in order for things to really like push forward, like the sense that I get off of you is that you have like a sort of strong Martian energy. That, you know, which is that, uh, you know, ability to use your aggression towards getting what you want, but if it's dispersed, into that's Martian people,
0: energy,
1: like Mars.
2: Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's a neutral energy, right? Aggression is a neutral energy. So, oh, so it's
0: not like a, a, a dickish aggression.
2: No, not at all. I mean, and a lot of the time though, that's something that can get in our way. So for instance, like if we have an idea about authority or aggression, that it's always something to be avoided and it's something that we don't want to do because we see the way that authorities act in the world around us or aggressive people. And so we don't want to take that step. Then we'll never get anything that we want because you need to have aggression in order to do that. But so it's a way of like developing sort of a healthy attitude towards your aggression. So for you, like it seems like, you know, you that there could be an aspect of your aggression that is dispersed in many different in down many different roads and pathways that at least for the time that you're really pushing this this book that you would want to really focus and direct your energy in one specific area, because I can see that you have a strong ability to manifest your will. I mean, you've, you've done a lot, you've accomplished a lot. So obviously you have, but I have also,
0: I've, I've said this before in the show, like I have a lot of different things going on. I've always spread myself sort of thin with like multiple different creative pursuits. Yeah. You're telling me I should maybe consider focusing.
2: Well, Would that be something that you would want to do?
0: I've thought about how much easier it would be. Like, but you know, I like all the things I do, but I think like I get the deepest rewards from writing. And if I'm like, I'm still, I'm trying to, 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 hmm. you know, it's, it's like making decisions about what your purpose is or like what you want your purpose to be like your highest purpose Mm -hmm. in terms of what you contribute um, Mm -hmm. through the work that you do. Mm -hmm. And I think that writing books is deep work. And I, I think that because of uh, being a reader Mm -hmm. and so to create that experience or some approximation of that experience as a writer is really meaningful to me, like, you know, as a pursuit and like, hopefully as an outcome for whoever picks up the book. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also really love this, you know, like doing this show because I feel like this is a service to a community of readers and writers and just people who like listening to people talk.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, you know what I'm saying? So like, uh, it's, it's hard for me to choose.
2: But you could also marshal your energy so that, for instance, during the time when you are like trying to sell an ambitious book, like having people on the show who energetically advocate for the position that you're taking with your book, for instance, that that could sort of create uh, energetic assistance for you. Or even for, like having, for instance, like Jupiterian... Guests on your show. So, like, what does that mean? Yeah, so if you think about like Jupiter, you know, Jupiter is a planet of like leadership, um, of magnanimity, like um, of like largess. Uh, so, if you have guests that sort of like speak to that, or you know, using sort of crafty ways to um, like make it so that everything in your life is focusing on that specific purpose during that time and also doing it with like intention. So for instance, like you might set up an altar. I know that you wouldn't do that, but like, don't don't you
0: (laughs) never know? I might set up an altar in here.
2: Uh, You should, you should set up a book. (laughs) I mean, it's a very
0: nice garage, but it's a, could use a little spice. It's a little, it's a little monochromatic. I think
2: an altar right there in front of the TV would be really great. Put it right in front of the flat screen. You could put some pictures of Jupiter or some of your, you know, some of your spiritual heroes. Like, who do you really admire?
0: Thich Nhat Hanh. Okay. Yeah.
2: I mean, interesting choice for getting your book published. I mean, he has published a lot of books.
0: Yeah, he's a great writer.
2: He's a great writer. And he's also very courageous. Yeah. You know, like he was like smuggling kids out of Cambodia or something. Yeah. No. To to
0: me, he's like to me, he's the genuine article, Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that few human beings are. And like, I'm a, I devour stuff like that. So I've read through a lot of them, but like, I just find, and I find like when I say he's a great writer, the reason I think he's so great is that he's so, he's so clear and simple. Yeah. He has a
2: really clear idea of what he's trying to say
0: and, and he can do it. And a lot of times, um, especially when it comes to spiritual stuff, it's, it, it doesn't cut quite so clearly. Uh, it's hard to do. It's hard to even talk about it clearly, let it's alone write about It's hard to about talk it.
2: about anything clearly. yeah, Because it's really hard to have a clear perspective on anything when there's so many different options and alternatives. But I see that as being something that's really essential. So when you do set up your altar, you know, and you have Thich Nhat Hanh on your altar, <laughs> yeah, right? And so also, for instance, like when you're working with your agent to write the publicity materials, or like you're going down to like you know, sit down and figure out, like, how am I going to pitch this? How am I going to speak to this? Like, doing some channeling of his spirit. Like, does do you feel like your book is able to communicate in that same effective way?
0: I hope so. I mean, I hope so. He's, he, he factors into the book. He does? So, yeah. Like, uh, you know, it's then very Then he would
2: be really good to put on your altar. I'm gonna, Although I wonder, like, do you think Thich Nhat Hanh would want your book to be published? I hope so. Yeah, but that's not a good enough answer.
0: I think so, yeah. yeah. I do. I what is I
2: it about your book that you feel like Thich Nhat Hanh would approve of?
0: I think that it's about a person uh, struggling spiritually mm-hmm. um, in, an, in an honest way. And I think he would find that relatable. And I think that the... You know, what I'm hoping with the book... I mean, that's not all that the book is. But I'm hoping that you know a reader would be able to relate to that. And in seeing this imperfect character struggling in this way would find resonances in their own life and would find value. Um, and maybe some level of understanding in it. Mm-hmm. And you know what I'm saying? So I think that's what he would, that's what he would approve of. It's not like an instructional book. It's not nonfiction, mm-hmm. you know, but it's the story of a person making a genuine attempt, uh, in the face of suffering and difficulty and challenge, mm-hmm. you know, that's a broad way of putting it. But yeah, I think he would, if he, if he were to read it, I think he would approve.
2: And what do you think people connect with? Like, he's a hugely popular Buddhist. Yeah. Right?
0: Or just teacher. Yeah. Teacher. Period. Right.
2: And, and there are many different teachers out there, but why him? Like, why do people resonate with him? What, what is it about his message and how he's communicating that?
0: Well, I'll tell you a couple of things. I've thought a lot about this, but like, I want to say he speaks five languages fluently. Mm-hmm. He's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, he was educated at Princeton, so I think that, and I think maybe Columbia, but mm-hmm. he was educated in the West and became fluent in English and acclimated to American life in a way that a lot of Buddhist teachers, especially of his era, were not. So he was able to translate. As a translator of the teaching, he's, extreme, he's an extremely good student of it, mm-hmm. and he's also gleaned from it... Um, the the very best of it, like the very best essences of it. And he's boiled that down into simple instructions that anybody can process. So I think his facility with language is a big part of it. I think the other thing is that he truly was called to be a monk when he was like 16. Mm. And he went to the monastery when he was 16 years old and he lived it from a very young age. So it's authentic in that way. He had good teachers, obviously. He also lived through the Vietnam War. So he's experienced extreme suffering. He's been witness to extreme suffering. He's had his life threatened. He's been in very dangerous situations. He's had friends of his die by the dozens. You know what I'm saying? So like he's been in exile. He was in exile for 40 years, just like the, you know, much like the Dalai Lama has been in exile, but maybe to an even greater extent, he's seen real strife. Mm. And I think that when a person comes through that level of intense suffering, And has that good of a brain and that kind of facility with language and stays committed to the practice and not just living the practice in a cave up in the hills, but actually down Mm -hmm. in the weeds with the people trying to alleviate suffering. He calls it engaged Buddhism. Mm -hmm. You know, um, there's an authenticity to it Mm -hmm. that I think is what resonates with people. There's Mm -hmm. it's, it's the clarity and simplicity and authenticity and just this real sense that he lives it and that there's not there's no angle you know, he's not, he's not going to try to sell you a used car. Um, you're not going to find out like, I hope, I hope not, but you're not going to find out that like he was sexually molesting nuns at the monastery or, you know, a lot of times you hear this stuff with with, with people who ascend to guru status or whatever. There's a lot of corruption because there's a lot of power in that station. And, uh, I don't, I don't get any of that from him.
2: Well, what's amazing when you talk about him is like how activated you become and like how energized and how clearly you're able to speak about his work and the things that inspire you about his work. And I feel like if you utilize that same voice in pitching your own work, you know, if you are able to have the same kind of conviction in putting your own work forward as you are putting forward the work of Thich Han, that people will be he's easy to sell. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's about
2: cultivating, you know, so your process of this, the spell that you're going to do when you go to sell your work, would be about getting yourself into a place energetically, where you are able to speak about your work in the same way and with the same conviction, with the same deep knowledge of its authenticity and helpfulness that you can speak about TikNat Han. And so that might be a process that you would do over a month that then you're energetically resonating on that level that would open up for more possibilities um, of success to come through. Now I'm not saying it's a one hundred percent chance that you will then sell your book for like a, a, you know one percent. If this thing doesn't million.
0: sell, I'm gonna call you up. Like <laughs> what the fuck?
2: Well jupiter now, well,
0: jupiter failed me
2: yeah well so you know we'd always have options options more options after that and right. a lot of you know time to go like, to neptune well yeah i'm probably not neptune but <laughs> yeah um yeah you know so the thing is like we don't always get everything that we want in life that's right and sometimes you know w- later we can see you know the benefit of that you know like we can think of breakups that we've had where you know we really wanted to be with that person and then we weren't and you know then we look back and we think well it's actually better now because blah 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 or you know things like for instance like i was just writing about this on my blog about you know when i was younger i really wanted to be a dancer and me too um, yeah you did why
0: are you laughing (laughs) what's so funny about that
2: well because it's hard for me to (laughs) imagine i didn't want to be a dancer um yeah. yeah so i really wanted to be a dancer and um you know, I I didn't I couldn't do it like I for a variety of reasons like I did not succeed in that venture and it was really devastating. just not
0: a good enough dancer like not enough like natural talent or.
2: Um yeah I think there were a couple different things going on. I mean in some ways I was very talented as a dancer and I had a really lovely quality but um and I was really strong, but I I was also kind of a nervous wreck when I was younger and um it was hard for me to for instance like pick up combinations really quickly like. I'm dyslexic. So like when I look in the mirror, like often when you're learning a dance combination, you're kind of learning it backwards and in the mirror. And some people just have an innate ability to pick up combinations really quickly. But if you can't pick them up really quickly, then you can't, right. like you can't, you won't audition. Well, for
0: yeah. instance, well, it's a physical thing. It's like a it's sport, you know, like it, yeah. Th- there's a brutal culling that happens in those sorts of pursuits. Yeah. You know, like I've, like you were saying earlier, like if you wanted to, uh, cast a spell to become, you know, the next astronaut or whatever. It's probably not going to happen. If I said I wanted to play for the Lakers, yeah, it's not going to happen.
2: Yeah. I mean, the thing is though, like there's a lot of ways to dance still, like just because like, I can't be, you know, I also started late. Like there are all sorts of things, but just because like I didn't get to have what I wanted doesn't mean that I don't get to dance anymore. Yeah, of course. Like, but so, you know, of course we always want to have what we want in exactly the way that we want it. Um, But, you know, my not achieving what I wanted as a dancer also led me into some really interesting places. And now I'm really grateful to be where I'm at. And I feel like very rewarded by my work. And and I also feel like some of that, you know, failure that really wanting something and not getting it, that kind of continuous heartbreak that I had over and over and over again throughout my late teens and early twenties and even into my thirties, I felt like has made me a much more compassionate person. Right. And that compassion, I feel like really helps me in the work that I do. And I don't think I could have gotten there if I just got everything I wanted, you know, just easily, if it all just came really easily to me and i'm not saying that that's like uh, uh, like yes it would be amazing if everything that i've ever wanted just came to me but that's not the way that it's happened and i think more important than getting what you want is feeling at peace with where you're at and feeling excited and energized and empowered to live each moment as it's coming to you because the thing is too like as we you know just to sort of circle back to the you know that writer party you know the where all those successful writers were like they all got what they wanted, and it wasn't enough,
1: right you know it's it never enough it's
2: never enough, yeah, and like of course, it would have been extremely satisfying to be like the best dancer on earth, um and maybe that would have been enough for me. You know, I think a lot of people, like if we ask Donald Trump, for instance, like, is it enough for you that you are president and that you are so wealthy? That's a
0: bottomless hole.
2: Yeah, there's just, it's never going to be enough. So, I mean, magic is, I feel like magic can increase the likelihood of you getting what you want, but it can't say with 100% certainty that you will get it. But more important than that, magic makes you feel Empowered and strong, and have agency to feel like you like this world is your playground. Like you, like like to feel completely engaged with the world around you in a creative way that feels expi- inspiring and energizing. And to me, that's what's more important than just like you know that all your problems are solved because problems are like a, a bottomless. That's right. Pit.
0: Yeah. Cause like then once the book sells, then it's like, oh shit, is it gonna, then are people going to buy it? Yeah. How are the reviews going to be? Yeah. You know, and then like you get into that whole thing. And then- or,
2: yeah, or like you, so let's say you sell your book for like a, a very, you know, respectable, like let's say you sold it for like a hundred thousand dollars and then you had a friend who sold their book for $600,000 and then you had a friend who sold their book for $20,000 and then you're like ranking yourself in relation to that, you know, like. And then exactly like, you know, who buys it? Is it going to be option? Like all of this stuff, it's just an an unending cycle, you know, that you kind of keep having to do magical ceremonies for.
0: It's good for your business. (laughs) (laughs) There's always something more that we want,
2: but more importantly, it's really about like whether or not you sell your book, it's about how excited you feel to continue doing the work that you're doing.
0: Yeah. I feel excited. I hope I can continue to do it. You know, I got a lot of things to balance, but, um, do you have a coven? So witches have coven. a coven? A coven? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, yeah, I, I teach a monthly mystery school, um, that sort of functions as my coven. Is it um, just women? Mostly it is women. Okay. But
0: I, I can't show up. To no
2: this. guys come. No, they do. Guys come all the time. Uh-huh. Yeah. But you know, it is mostly women. I have to say, um, and I, I have a like, pretty extensive witch community here in Los Angeles. There's uh, a lot of La- witches in LA. It's a city of witches oh and oracles God. and mystics. Absolutely. Yeah. But it always has been it since all, the I, beginning, right? I
0: do like that because like, it is it, it is a new age, whatever you want, you know, for lack of a better term, spiritual laboratory. Yeah. And I love that.
2: I love it too. And I love, you know, one of the things that's really exciting about witchcraft today is that it's drawing from all these different traditions. So yeah, it's drawing from the sort of like, tradition of, you know, classical Alexandrian and Gardnerian witchcraft from England, but it's also drawing on like shamanistic practices and indigenous practices and, uh, like practices from like Scandinavia and popular culture and, um, I I you
0: Iceland has a lot of witches, right? Oh yeah. Because Bjork, like, yeah, she's like, well, supreme they, like, witch.
2: they, like you have to I don't know if this is true, but I've heard that you have to like check in with the fairies before you build anywhere.
0: Exactly. Yeah. See? And that's I awesome. Didn't, I didn't even know that. I just instinctively knew. Yeah. So love this. Right. Well
2: paganism is their national religion, is well, one of them.
0: See, there we go. Yeah. You gotta to go to Iceland.
2: I would love to go to Iceland. Um but I heard it's really expensive.
0: I don't know. I you know, I'd have to look at the exchange rate.
2: Yeah. I mean I did live in Northern Europe and um I loved it. Where? I, I lived for nine months in the Netherlands, and then I lived in London for six years, okay. which is not exactly Northern Europe, but the Netherlands was fucking cold.
0: Were you in Amsterdam?
2: I was. Yeah. Yeah. It's a
0: beautiful town. I loved it. It's great.
2: It was amazing. Did you
0: ride a bike around and all that? I
2: time. rode a bike all over the place. Smoked a bunch of weed? I mean, I worked in a hash bar,
0: uh-huh.
2: but I'm not a big pot smoker, so yeah. I only worked there because that was the only job that I could get Okay. Um, as a foreigner, you know? Yeah. And uh, it was like a Rosafarian hash bar where half the clients were uh basically like drug dealers who sold drugs on the street from Suriname which was a, was a former Dutch colony and then like European and American tourists who would come in and try and get like as high as possible in the shortest <laughs> amount of time
0: I was one of those guys yeah. once. <laughs> but
2: once. the the which what
0: was the name of the hash bar you worked at It
2: it there were two it, it was owned by the same guy and there were two locations. One of them was called the Outer Kirk, which is the old church and that was the name of the street that it was on, Old uh-huh. Church Street. And then the other one was called Rasta Baby. Rasta and Baby. it was down by the sort of central station. And so whenever I would walk down the street and like the drug dealer guys who knew me would always say, Hey Rasta Baby <laughs> It was pretty cute.
0: <laughs> I think I went to a one called the gray area.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, probably it had like. I mean, this is in the 90s, so probably it had like aliens painted on the walls and like black lights and like are you talking about the techno? gray area or
0: are you talking about the rasta baby
2: i'm talking about all the oh, places yeah. no they rasta the baby vi- had stuff. The
0: vibes. i never i didn't to be quite honest I, I actually the gray area was just a small hole in the wall and there were like pictures of like woody harrelson and willie nelson on the wall like they had famous right. people you know the, photos people
2: who love pot <laughs> yeah
0: but who had come there <laughs> right oh you know? okay um and it was relatively you know uh, decent vibe but like sometimes like you'd walk into some of those bars and it would be like everyone just looks like they're just like out to lunch and yeah, you know, it's not that it's do. not a happy vibe.
2: Yeah. I mean, I feel like marijuana is, well, I see it, you know, all, all, all plants is like plant medicines, you know, and in shamanic practice, you know, all plant medicines, plants are considered middle world spirits. So they're all spirits of this, this realm rather than the upper world or the lower world. And so as middle world spirits, they all have an agenda. What
0: is is pot's agenda?
2: Well, pot's agenda is it to further its own interests, just like every other middle world spirit. And, you know, it also has a lot of teaching and a lot of wisdom, but it's also been, you know, part of the pot spirit or the marijuana spirit. I feel like it's been corrupted by all of its... The way that human beings have like manipulated it. So, for instance, like it's all genetically modified, like purple super skunk with crystals on it or whatever. <laughs> right. And I don't feel like that's the sort of same. We're not engaging with the same spirit as, you know,
0: it's like Frankenstein weed.
2: Yeah. Or, to, or, or tobacco, you know, for instance, like Native Americans use tobacco as like a sacred. Uh, herb to create peace, and I still feel like tobacco has a lot of wisdom for us, but it also is used, you know, and manipulated and covered in tar and coated with chemicals and like it was inv- involved in like the slave trade and all these things which sort of filter through and affect the way that we experience the medicine of this plant or when we say medicine, like what we're saying is like the spirit of that plant is right. then like very much informed by that. Like if we had gone through all those processes, which we do, Get influenced and informed and squished and squashed and manipulated, you know then we end up being you know having an agenda that maybe isn't in the best interests of the greatest good for all concerned, and I think that's true you know so you 're saying smoke
0: smoke like organic pot that you grow yourself
2: yeah, I mean I at this point in my life just think that when you use medicinal plants like it should be in a ceremonial way If you if what you're wanting is to really like learn from and have a dialogue with that plant, then it should be in a way of ceremony or I mean if you're just doing it to like chill out whatever that's your business and go ahead and do it. But um, I think a lot of the time though, if you develop a relationship that's you know extremely intimate with a plant, then you run the risk of harming other relationships that you have, like your relationship to your work or your relationship to your partner.
0: Right. When people are just like chronically smoking weed, it, yeah. isol- can isolate it isolates you, you. Yeah.
2: you know? So like you, it, and that's because you have a, you know, in the way that I think of it, it's because you have, you have like a, you're you're like lovers with this plant and it makes it so that you can't really connect to other things you're so obsessed in, yeah. in this sort of obsessive codependent relationship with the spirit
0: I, like when i was in college uh which was when i smoked like the most of my pot I, I remember being like coming to the realization i was like this is like selfish time
1: mm-hmm.
0: like it felt like selfish time because everybody would sort of zone even when you were with other people if everybody yeah. was smoking pot they'd sort of like zone out on their own
1: Mm-hmm.
0: you just, the, the dialogue seemed to be hampered. Sometimes it was good. Yeah. Sometimes you can get into like a really funny, creative dialogue that you're just like laughing until you cry. That's the best. Yeah. But a lot of times I felt like it actually made people isolated and like cocooned in their own heads. Um, and, and, and it also, I think incentivizes or not incentivizes, but causes like antisocial impulses to maybe rise up where you're like, I don't want to go out. Yeah, I'll just stand. Yeah, totally eat this cereal, you know, and watch TV.
2: Well, pot's been very successful as an organism, right? Like, I don't know where it originally came from. But now it's everywhere. It's spread all over the world. You know, just like corn has also been a very successful organism, like whatever its gene is doing. if I can be
0: as successful as corn.
2: Then you would My rule life. the
0: world. <laughs> My life would be... <laughs>
2: Maybe you need to have corn on your altar.
0: <laughs> corn and Thich Nhat Hanh. Yeah. And like a, big... there a few
2: hemp seeds. And
0: some hemp seeds, you know, some uh, organic hemp seeds. <laughs> it
2: uh... Sounds like you've got the makings of a great altar.
0: <laughs> well, I couldn't have done it without you. I have so enjoyed uh, talking with Thank you. Thank you. It's been great I've to been be I've been hearing you. You're not like multiple guests on the show have told me about you either on the air or off the air. And I'm glad to finally meet you. Uh, and I wish you well.
2: Thank you. I'm really grateful to be here and to be a part of your, you know, celebrity clientele. <laughs> of course. So, <laughs> yeah. And I wish you luck with your book. And if you do want um, a spell, you know, come and I'll give you one, you know, on the house. Okay. So, Thank you very much. It. All right. <laughs>
0: All right, folks, there you go. That's the show. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support it, you can do so over at patreon.com slash other people pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Make a monthly donation, support the show, help it continue to flourish. That was Amanda Yates Garcia, the Oracle of Los Angeles. You can find her online at oracleoflosangeles.com. She's on Twitter at Amanda Yates G. She's on Facebook. She's on Instagram. She's on Pinterest. She's all over the place. A little bit of a change up. Never hurts. I really enjoyed that. I hope you're having a good holiday season. If you're not having a good holiday season, I hope that made it a little better. I finished my Christmas shopping. Got that done. I think I did well this year. I feel like I got things that people need, yet will also like. Do you know what I'm saying? So, I'm trying to think. I'm going to try to get the holiday episode up. I have, the, the problem is that I have like three hours almost of tape to deal with, of varying sound quality with multiple voices. Everybody is inebriated and it's trying to cut something together that, you know, is enjoyable to listen to, is semi-coherent. It's a heavy lift in terms of uh, man hours, maybe more than I uh, anticipated brought it on myself this is Vince Guaraldi by the way the music today other than the theme song music all uh, provided by Vince Guaraldi the uh, great jazz musician from San Francisco he's the guy who wrote the the Peanuts theme song you know Vince Guaraldi it's one of my favorite Christmas albums go get it I wish I could play the piano like this life would be better What do I want for Christmas? How about a different president? (laughs) Can we have a do over? Can we have a do over for Christmas? Trying to stay positive in 2017, even though, in spite of, courage, dark humor. and uh, you know, fighting spirit. I've been reading a lot. That's been nice. Do I do this every year in December? I feel like I ingest media at an accelerated rate right around like December, January. I get hungry for that. I need to see some movies. I haven't seen the uh, new Star Wars movies, or Star Wars movie. Um, it's getting mixed reviews from people I know. Love, hate. And people kept telling me to, to watch uh, this new show, The OA. I tried to watch it. I couldn't even, I couldn't even uh, access it. I watched like two, two uh, episodes and just checked out. Just my personal taste. Did not reach me. I'll tell you a show that I have been enjoying, though, is uh, Hamilton's Pharmacopeia on Vice. It's like this really, like, emaciated millennial science geek who's deep into chemistry and uh, pharmacology, and he just travels the world ingesting chemicals in, like, a nerdy way. There's also this documentary show on, like, Nat Geo about this guy named Mick Dodge, who has lived in the uh, wilds of Washington State for 20 years. I'm always fascinated by people who live off the grid. I harbor secret dreams of that, though I don't think I could ever do it. I remember seeing that movie Nell starring Jodie Foster years ago, thinking it was a masterpiece. (laughs) Uh, I think that's why I hiked the Appalachian Trail. Then I got out there and I was like, oh, shit getting rained on I'm filthy are you traveling? I'm always curious as to where people are listening to this maybe you're in transit maybe you're inert. wherever you are happy holidays I'll be back soon And uh, I think I'll have another show before the New Year's up. We'll see. Basically just waiting for this song to end. All right, there it is.